Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. After making millions of dollars as a poker pro, this week's guest, Annie Duke, retired to teach others the science of making smart decisions. Her secret? Know when to quit. It's a subject of her new book, Quit. She joined us for a live stream in conversation with behavioural economist Katie Milkman. I love this book, and I actually just want to start at the beginning by asking you uh, to tell the story of what motivated you to write it. Yeah, so what motivated me to write it is really that quitting, the option to quit, is so incredibly valuable in a world where we have to make decisions to start things under uncertainty. So we can think about it. It's like when we start things, that how it turns out is somewhat going to be influenced by luck. But also for most things that we decide about, we know very little in comparison to all there is to be known. So what that means is that after we start stuff, we're going to learn new things. And I think we've all had that feeling of like, I wish I knew then what I know now. And that's that feeling of, you know, there's information discovery that occurs like after the fact, after you've decided to begin something. And the option to quit is what allows you to react to that feeling of, I wish I knew then what I know now, because when the information you discover is bad news, you can stop. The thing though, is that people don't think that stopping is a good thing, right? When we think about like the aphorisms around quitting, they're like, you know, quitters never win and winners never quit. If I call you a quitter, Katie, I'm sort of kind of calling you a loser, right? (laughs) Like, Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't be, but most people would be. And so I don't think that we really appreciate, first of all, the the value of quitting and that quitting is often a really good choice. And then people have really, I think, misinterpreted Angela Duckworth's work around grit to sort of fit in with, I think, what a prior bias is that like grit builds character, that it's uh, that it's a virtue and stopping things is bad. And it shows that you're weak willed because, you know, what Angela's point is, is that you should try a lot of stuff. And then the stuff that isn't working, you should not pursue. And the stuff that is, you should pursue, even if it's really hard. I think that the way that people sort of think about that conversation is much more just in stick to things, that that's a good thing to do, right? That if you want to be successful, you have to stick to things. If you want to build character, you have to stick to things. And I think that's a really big misinterpretation. So I just felt like there needed to be a conversation, which came from the other side of the puzzle, right? So if we think that You want to try a lot of stuff, stick to the stuff that's good, and then quit the rest. Someone needed to have a conversation about the quit the rest part, you know, in order to really get people to understand the the relationship between those two traits, you know, sticking and quitting. Yeah, and I, I couldn't agree more, by the way, and I teach my students about many of these topics. And it's one of the reasons I love the book is because I do think we're so biased against um, this really important act. So I love that point. And, and P.S. Angela is a close friend and collaborator, and I know she agrees, too. Um, There's been a bunch of people who said, oh, you should have a debate with with Angela. And I'm like, it would be really boring. There's nothing and to debate. She's we would go, OK, I agree with her. <laughs> like, yes, yes. <laughs> it's it's but uh, but you're right that there's been a mischaracterization and that that's led people to miss such an important point. Uh, One of my favorite stories in the book is about how the legendary Berkeley professor, Barry Staw, came to discover (laughs) something incredibly important about why we don't quit. Uh, And I'd love it if you could tell that story and what you see as its moral. Okay, so Barry Staw is uh, just a giant in the field. He was one of the first generation 
to study something called escalation of commitment. And uh, escalation of commitment is basically the phenomenon. In fact, I would really encourage everybody to look up Katie Milkman's work on this, who is also cited in the book. Escalation of commitment is basically this phenomenon that we have the intuition that when we discover information that tells us that things aren't going well, right? That the thing that we're doing is no longer worth pursuing, that obviously when they we see those signals that we'll walk away from what we're doing, but that that intuition is actually kind of bonkers. It doesn't turn out that that's what we do at all. Instead, we really escalate our commitment to losing causes. So in his, let's say, conscious mind, he, you know, if you asked him, like, what inspired you to think about this, he would say the Vietnam War. So he was doing this work in the 70s on the heels of the Vietnam War. It had been a very much sort of a generation defining event for his generation of scientists. And they found that despite the fact that like we had gotten into this war and it was like there's never any point where it felt like we were winning it, uh, that the United States kept sort of doubling and tripling down, even in the face of very clear signals that that war wasn't going to be winnable. And then the Pentagon Papers came out and Under Secretary of State George Ball said, in the papers, he had advised, don't start the war because once you get embroiled in it and you start to accumulate losses, you won't be able to stop and we'll be stuck in it. So that that generation of scientists got really inspired by the war. But my feeling is that Barry Stow actually got inspired by his own father. <laughs> that is what I think. So I was chatting with Barry and he made like an offhand comment just that his dad had been in business and wasn't like a particularly good business person. And so I had had like a two hour conversation with him about his actual like scientific research on escalation commitment. And it kept bugging me this thing, like this thing he said about his dad. So I I got back in touch with him. We had like a two hour conversation about his father and it's an amazing story. So his father is, um, it was named Harold Staw, married to Shirley and Harold and Shirley Staw started a store in the Inland Empire in the US. So this is like, if you think about LA and you go east, sort of more inland, like away from the ocean, you'll end up in the Inland Empire. And in the 50s, this was a really growing area. It was sort of in the the post-war boom. And there was a really big factory called the Kaiser factory in the place that he lived. And he had an idea, which was to start a store which would sell appliances to people in the union. And if you had a union card, you'd get like a discount. So he rents out a little tiny storefront that actually housed chickens. And he's like sweeps out all the chicken feathers. He gets floor models. He doesn't, it's not big enough and he doesn't have the capital bill to have actually stuff in stock. But, you know, the union members would come, they'd find a refrigerator they like, and then he would order the refrigerator. They'd get a discount. Turned out that that was a really good idea. He opened a second location He then went to a third location, dropped the union requirement in order to be able to do it. He had enough money to have inventory now, and he renamed it ABC Stores, and basically his empire starts to grow. So uh, he gets like this big 50,000 square foot property in Montclair, which is also in the empire, and he starts to move toward LA on a new highway that's being built, and eventually ends up even with locations in, in, in LA. He has a couple of stores in LA. Along the way, so very, very successful, big, successful business. You can think about it as like, I don't know what the equivalent in the UK would be, but like a Walmart. It's sort of like Walmart meets Best Buy kind of thing that he has. So somewhere along the way, he merges with some similar types of stores that are in Texas. It's a big Texas chain of sort of similar sort of like one-stop shopping places. 
he becomes CEO of that merged entity. And Harold at that time, according to stock filings and what his stock was, had $3 million. This was in the 60s. So this was a lot of money that Barry Stahl's dad had accumulated. But then what happens is that Kmart, which was a Walmart-like store in America, starts to expand and starts opening stores like right across from Harold's stores. But it's only the California stores that are being affected. So now we have this problem in the company where the California stores start to lose money and the Texas stores are making money. So the shareholders of the combined entity are like, we need to sell the California stores. He says, I don't want to do that because they're his babies, right? Like he didn't create the Texas stores. He created the California stores, that that's what he had put like his heart and soul into. So he didn't want to do that. Um, The shareholders end up suing and his best friend and lawyer defects to the other side and ends up representing the other side. So the way they settle it is they kind of unscramble the eggs and uh, Harold walks away with his California stores. The shareholders walk away with the rest of the entity. So obviously at this point, he doesn't have his stock or anything like that was the settlement was he walked away with his stores, but Kmart continued to be a problem and the store started really to lose money. And he started to sort of sink his personal fortune into trying to save. So this is the escalation of commitment piece, right? Like he's putting more money. He's taking his own personal money, putting it into trying to save the stores Somewhere around like 1970 or so, there was another big chain from Oregon that was trying to get a foothold in California. They offered to buy him out. He said, no, it wasn't enough money. He wasn't like going to get his money back if he took the offer. So he decided to keep going and eventually ended up bankrupt. So, you know, in my opinion, Barry may not know that that was the genesis of his study on escalation of commitment, but I want to make a pretty big bet that that was. And it's just a tragic story about what, you know, what happened with his dad. But I think it's a really good demonstration of the way that we can get stuck in losing causes, even when there's really clear signals that we ought to walk away. And we don't. And we we keep going with it even so until we butt up against the dead certainty that there is no other choice. Yeah, I love that story. And it is it's so amazing to hear because Barry has really brought to light this incredibly important phenomenon. He's ushered so many scholars into understanding how this works. And it's so fascinating to get that background on his life. Could you talk a little bit about sunk costs, which I think are a big part of that story, both sort of, you know, what they are, how they trip us up. And if you want how they relate to what you just described. Sure. So, I mean, we can do this thought experiment, right? Like, so pretend you don't know about sunk costs and just imagine what your intuition is here. Because I think one of the things that we know is like, even when you know about these things, your intuition still leads you astray. I mean, that's kind of the point of these types of cognitive biases. So Katie, like imagine that there was a band that you really loved and it was, you know, they're going to come play in your town, but it's going to be an outdoor concert. And you know, they schedule the outdoor concert for like a reasonable time of year. Let's say it's like, you know, April and there, it's a freak day of weather and it's like freezing cold and it's like hail pouring down, but it's like really cold. It's like in the thirties. So you haven't bought a ticket, but you really love the band. Would you buy a ticket that day to go see the concert? No way. Right. No, no way. way. Like it's freezing. <laughs> like you're going to get hailed on. No way. But what if you had paid $200 for a ticket two weeks ago? Well, I wouldn't want to waste my $200. Right. So that's the sunk cost fallacy. So that $200 is already spent. 
So uh, what happens is that when we're thinking about what we want to do going forward, we'll take into account what we've already put into a cause leading up to that. And the fact is, like, if you were perfectly rational, if you determine that it's not worth it for you to buy a ticket that day because it's not going to be a good use of your time, you're going to be unhappy and cold, maybe you're going to get sick, like it's just going to be a really unpleasant experience, then the fact that you happen to have spent $200 on a ticket actually shouldn't be included in the discussion. Like another way to think about it is if there's a stock that's trading at 40 that I do analysis on and I wouldn't buy it today. Then if I bought it at 50 and it's now trading at 40, I also should not continue to hold it. But we will because we say, but then I can't get my money back. And this is this idea where we think about like waste as sort of retrospectively, like I don't want to waste the the time that I've put into something. I don't want to waste the money. I don't want the ticket to go to waste. If we have a job that we're unhappy in, but what about all the training that I've put into it and the onboarding and learning the culture and all of this stuff with relationships, but I put so much time into the relationship. And so we're sort of taking that stuff into account in thinking about whether we should continue on and spend more. And the problem is that that's what actually generates waste. Because once you've determined something isn't worthwhile, it's not worth it for me to go to the concert. It's not worth it for me to stay in this job. It's not worth it for me to hold this stock. If I continue to do it or, you know, I continue to to stay on that course of action because I'm worried about what I've already spent, then now I'm actually wasting because I'm, I'm continuing on past the point I determined it wasn't worthwhile. And that's what the sunk cost fallacy does to us is it, it gets us stuck in stuff that we ought to walk away from. So like what happened with Barry Starr, right? Like he spent all this time and money and put so much of himself in building those stores and he didn't want to abandon it. And then ultimately when it got down to him being offered that buyout from Fred Meyer, which was the chain that was trying to get a foothold in California, he said, I can't do it because I'm I'm not going to get my money back. They weren't offering him enough to get his money back, but it doesn't matter. It's, it's valued at whatever it's valued and it's more than zero. So, so he kept going until he was bankrupt, which is kind of what ends up happening to us. That was such a beautiful explanation of sunk costs because I have to teach my MBA students at Wharton about it every year. And I love the way you did that. So I just have to say, oh, thanks. Awesome job. And I'm going to copy and paste that when I. And it's right. It's so powerfully (laughs) intuitive, right? Because it feels like that you bought the ticket already matters. It does. It feels exactly like that. And, and, you know, I think mental account, right, this tendency we have to like think about money and time, not as if they're fungible, but if, as if they're like, in these little narrow accounts has a lot to do with it. Yeah. yeah. Um, Because anyway, it's, it's hard for us to let go of those things. Hello, it's Vass here. One of our all time favorite guests at How To Academy is back. Yuval Noah Harari's next book tells the story of how information networks have made and unmade our world. Nexus, a brief history of information networks from the Stone Age to AI is out in September and available to pre order now. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
two more concepts I just want to cover that are so important. And then I want to get into how we overcome all of these biases and get better at quitting. Uh, Cause obviously that's the big message of the book is sort of how do you overcome it once you recognize it. But uh, we haven't talked much about two other nasty biases, which are confirmation bias and cognitive dissonance and how they can fuel failure to quit. So I was wondering if you could define and, and describe um, yeah. what we need to look for there. So confirmation bias is basically that we seek out information that confirms the things that we want to be true, uh, that we already believe to be true. So we can see how that's going to affect the ability to quit in the sense that like, look, we have these other biases that are lining up behind us, like sunk cost bias, where we want to justify the price that we paid for the ticket. And so then what will happen is that when we're trying to decide whether to continue to go forward, we're going to confirmation bias is going to allow us to rationalize the choice to continue to go forward because we're going to find evidence that confirms that we ought to keep going. So like, here's a very simple example of like confirmation bias that sort of merges with some other things like survivorship bias. Let's say that I, I have a startup and all signs point to no, it's going really badly. I'm not acquiring customers, so on and so forth. I'll find the one person who ended up with like down to their last 25,000, like unable to wait, raise around where everybody was telling them it wasn't going to work, who managed to turn it around. And I'm going to use that as evidence to keep going. So we can see where that becomes a problem, like over optimism. This is like Don Moore. He has a book called Perfectly Confident. I really recommend it. He also talks about how optimism can cause this too, because we'll overestimate the chances that things will work out. And so we can sort of see these a bunch of biases sort of line up to like cause this problem. Um, but a lot of that sort of part of the root cause of why are we thinking this way has to do with cognitive dissonance. So cognitive dissonance is really simply put when the world collides with your beliefs in some way that causes those to come into conflict. So I'll give you an example. The, the classic example is from a cult called the Seekers. Leon Festinger, who was the person who originally introduced this concept in the 50s, uh, wrote a book called When Prophecy Fails, which is actually about what happened with this cult. Also highly recommend that. It's very small. It's a monograph. It won't take you very long to read it. He was studying this group called the Seekers. And very simply, the Seekers thought that these aliens from the planet Clarion were going to come and uh, wipe humanity out because we were very bad. Um, but that the people in the cult who were true believers were going to be rescued by the aliens uh, so that they would not die in the flood. And like all doomsday cult, they actually had a date of the doom. Uh, and that date was like December 20th, I think, uh, 20th, 1954. So Festinger was like, oh, this will be very interesting because there's a date, December 20th. So if I'm in the cult on the date, I can see what happens when the aliens don't come. So this is an example of the world's con now conflicting with your beliefs, right? I thought aliens were going to come. Now they didn't. What happens? So he infiltrates the cult. December 20th comes, no aliens appear. And I think our intuition going back to Barry Staw is, well, then we'd leave the cult, right? There was a day of doom. Absolutely. It didn't, obviously we'd leave the cult. And of course that's not what happens. Not only do the people not leave the cult, but they actually escalate their commitment to the cult. So they become even more deeply embedded and uh, have stronger beliefs in the cult. And they sort of, you know, again, they rationalize away. Oh, well, actually the aliens are going to come at a different date or here's one. We believed so hard that we were going to get rescued and we believed that we staved it off. So that's why that didn't happen. Saved humanity, yeah. We saved humanity. <laughs> so now obviously when you're thinking about 
cult members, maybe you're like, ooh, they're super wacky. But we see this all the time with information that we get about like, you know, I just sort of give the thought experiment of imagine that you have, there's a political candidate that you support and you put a sign in your lawn. So that's an action that you've taken that says, you know, has the candidate's name and maybe you have a bumper sticker and your neighbors now know that you support that candidate and maybe you're like canvassing for them or whatever. And then you find out a piece of information about the candidate that's really negative. You know, maybe there's a scandal or something that really goes against what your values are. Do you stop supporting the candidate? No, because it creates too much dissonance. Why did I make the decision in the first place if now I'm going to switch and change? Because we want what dissonance tells you is that we want those things to be consonant. And we also want to be consistent, seen as consistent over time. It's very deeply embedded in sort of how we view ourselves as valid is that consistency. And so when it comes into conflict, we really have two choices, right? We can change our beliefs that will create consonance. Or we can rationalize away the information And that's what we end up doing is we rationalize away the information. And that causes us to cling to beliefs, to cling to the way that we've been doing things. Because if we switch, then that would sort of admit an inconsistency or a mistake in the first place. This is so important. And I'm just listening to you talk about. So I'm so glad this is out there and that you've written this book. I want to move on from sort of talking about all the problems, as I said, to thinking about what do we do about it? So let's assume we all accept this premise. I certainly do. And I certainly teach it that we should quit a lot more often and a lot faster than we typically do. And that these biases prevent us from doing that. So what is your best advice for how to put that into practice? So um, how can I, for instance, ensure that I start quitting things faster and more sure. often? So I I just want to say one thing, when it comes to the cognitive dissonance stuff, I just want to say that the more extreme the position that you take, the more likely this is going to be a problem. So if you believe that Pluto is a planet, so does everybody else. And so if someone tells you Pluto isn't a planet, obviously that creates dissonance, but it's not dissonance we particularly feel we need to resolve because we're not standing out from the crowd in any way. It's like, doesn't define us. This generally is problems with things that define us. And actually some work by a certain person named Katie Milkman, along with John Brashears, showed this even with like stock analysts, that when they take positions on analysis that stands out from the crowd, that when you get information that you're forecasted and actually end up bearing out, if you stood out from the crowd, you won't change your mind. If you were in consensus, you will change your mind. So like you'll incorporate evidence when you don't stand out from the crowd. But when you do stand up from the crowd, you'll very stubbornly stick to those previous ideas. So I just want to let people know, like, be very careful of these sort of identity defining beliefs, things that really make you stand out from the crowd. So I just want to get that in there because I think it's an, it's just important for people to understand. Um, so how do we solve for it? Knowing about it doesn't help you. That's one of the keys for how you solve it. It's like, okay, you know, it's a problem. It's not going to help you just in the same way that I really want to go to the concert if I bought the ticket, even though I know it's a mistake. Okay. So that's really important. Number two is, and this is one I hear from traders all the time is, well, what I imagine is every Monday I come in and I think if I didn't own this position, would I buy it today? And that also does not help you at all. So just want to be very clear, no help whatsoever. So uh, don't think that that's going to help you. In fact, that does damage because by asking yourself that question, you'll increase your confidence that you're getting to the right answer, even though it's not actually improving the quality of your decision. So It's actually problematic in that sense. What does help you, and this is, I think, a concept that comes from, that Daniel Kahneman talks about a lot, which is we're really bad at making decisions when we're in it. 
Meaning like in that moment when we're actually facing down the decision about whether we want to walk away or not, when we tend to be much better is when we're like thinking about what we might do in the future. So this relates like to your work and what you talk about and how to change is that when we're in the moment of like, are we going to go to the gym or not? It's actually quite hard for us. But when we think in advance about how do we plan it out? How do we make pre-commitments to actually make it so that we can execute this? How do we think about flexibility and the plans that we make so that if we don't do it, we have a backup plan, these kinds of things, that this can actually help us to actually be more rational in our decision-making. So we want to get ourselves out, essentially out of the midst of the decision. So one of the best ways to do that is to think in advance and set what I would call kill criteria. So to think about what are the signals that I might see in the future that would tell me that it's time to walk away? I think one of the simplest examples of kill criteria is a turnaround time in mountain climbing. And that basically is like when you're climbing Everest, when you leave camp for, they set a turnaround time, which is 1 p.m. So what that means is you leave camp for at midnight heading for the summit. But no matter where you are on the mountain, if 1 p.m. hits, you're supposed to turn around. In other words, you're supposed to quit, right? And it turns out that when you set that, people are just much more likely to turn around than they otherwise would. Because when you're in the midst of it, we've all heard of summit fever. It's just really hard to give up short of your goal because you feel like you're a loser because we don't really judge ourselves from how far we are from the starting point. In this case, it would be 29,000 feet. Um, But we judge ourselves from how far we are from the finish line. In this case, we're 300 feet short. And that means that we failed. So setting the turnaround time allows us to be more rational about willing to sort of take what we're feeling as a loss and actually get ourselves turned around. So that's like a super good example of a, of a, of kill criteria. I did this with like a sales team where I said, like, imagine you were pursuing a lead for six months, but then you didn't win the lead. Looking back, you sort of realized there were early signals that you weren't going to win it. What were they? And they generated this huge list. Like one of them was like the prospect only want to talk about price. They didn't care about our product, for example. From that, it was about 40 things. We created a list of kill criteria and that then becomes part of deal review. And now when they're going through the deals, they're saying like, well, do they have a competitor installed? Are they only asking about price? Are you getting a decision maker in the room? And this helps to get what Angela Duckworth and I both believe is is more of a barbell distribution to the kinds of things that you're doing where you want to stop doing things really early that aren't working and then really stick hard to things that that are working, right? So this lets them qualify deals out really early, but then really pursue hard the ones that look like they're going to worth, be worthwhile to get them to the close. In your personal life, you could say like, let's say you're, you have this thought cross your mind that maybe you want to quit your job. You would say, how long am I okay with the status quo? So let's say it's three months. So you always want to have a deadline involved of some sorts, right? So you say, okay, I'm okay for three months. And then write down for yourself, what could I see in three months that would tell me that this still isn't working out? What might I see that would tell me that it is? What are the things I would need to do in order to maybe get me to that good future? And then commit that when you see that your boss is still toxic, that you're actually going to walk away because otherwise you'll end up sort of cycling this, you know, I'm unhappy, but maybe I'm unhappy, but maybe, and this actually gets you to execute on the quit. So that's like one of the best strategies. Barry Staw actually did some of the foundational work showing that these types of strategies actually really do help to mitigate escalation of commitment. This sort of think in advance, create those benchmarks. What would be the criteria for continuing? What would be the criteria for exiting? and switching to another course. So this is totally science-backed. And then the other thing is get yourself someone to help you. 
you know, which I would call a quitting coach. So, I mean, Katie, I'm, I'm sure have you ever watched somebody do something where you're like, I can't believe they're not quitting. Like, it's so obvious they should be stopping. Yeah, because outsiders, right, we don't have these biases, all the ones that you've talked about. So we can right. see so clearly. Yeah. So don't you think people are probably looking at you thinking the same thing? <laughs> For sure. For sure. So get those people to tell you. That, that that's really what it comes down to. So that that could be a mentor could act in that role. A therapist actually is kind of a quitting coach, right? It could be, a, you know, just a really good friend that you have working with you. Like if you've started a company, your investors might be able to help you understand when you should continue and when you shouldn't. And I want to be clear, by the way, that quitting isn't just like I quit my job. It could be like I'm quitting this particular project that I'm pursuing, right? Or like in the startup world, they'll talk about pivoting from one product to another. That's quitting. You quit the old product and you're doing a new one, right? So anytime you're stopping something that you started, it's quitting, even if it's small. So sometimes it's small, sometimes it's big. We're kind of bad at all of them. Um, so if you get someone you know, from the outside looking in to help you with these problems, you're going to be much better at it. Because as you just said, they don't carry the sunk cost with you. So like if we go back to Barry Stahl, actually... He did a field study where he was looking at, so banks are, you know, they have these balance sheets and there's often very bad loans on their balance sheets. And at some point you've got to make the decision to essentially quit it. In other words, write it off to zero. So this would be this, you know, you mentioned mental accounting. It's something that Richard Thaler has talked about a lot, which is we don't like to close those accounts in a lot, the losses. So we'd prefer to sort of leave them open on the balance sheet. This would in case would be a physical balance sheet, then say, no, I'm just going to write it down to zero and I'm going to, sort of take that loss, right? So he was looking at that and he said, well, what happens when new management comes in? You know, and this is where you can objectively say it's not worth pursuing anymore. And what he found was when new management comes in, they don't have all the debris, all those bad accounts get written to zero immediately. Because you don't have to admit that you made a mistake. Like, think about that. Like, you're not carrying the loss. You're not thinking, oh, it was a mistake to give the loan in the first place, even though loans are probabilistic, right? Like some of them are going to default. You, It's sort of built into your model. That moment that it defaults, you feel like you made a mistake. So you'll keep it open, like in the hopes that maybe you could turn it around in the same way that you keep going with your startup in the hopes that maybe you could turn it around or you keep heading up Everest in the hopes that you'll make it to the summit, even though there's a huge snowstorm or whatever. And he found that, you know, fresh eyes really matter. So get some fresh eyes to come help you with these decisions. Hello, it's Vass here, recommending you a new book from our friends at Firm Press. This May, the author of The Argonauts and other genre-defying, unclassifiable modern classics, Maggie Nelson, is back with a new collection of essays. It's called Like Love. The collection celebrates art, artists, and thinkers, including Prince, Bjork, Sarah Lucas, and Judith Butler. Like Love is available to pre-order now in hardback, ebook, and audio. I love those pieces of advice. And I also just, this is a good opportunity to mention, for those of you who have questions, please feel free to put them in the Q&A, and I will start turning to your questions in about 10 to 15 minutes. Uh, and a couple have come in, Annie, that are really related to this topic. So I'm even going to pull them now. One anonymous uh, attendee mentioned that they're an actor and trying to figure out when to say it's enough. Uh, things haven't been working out. Things like visa problems and a foreign accent have given rise to a lot of doubts. And the question is, you know, even though this is what I'm really passionate about, how do I really define my kill criteria? And I'll just add one other at the same time. 
another question that came in that's very related is whether kill criteria are good for romantic relationships. So <laughs> those, those both feel so, like they're on topic. Yeah. So it's interesting. So I have an example in the book and I was debating between using actors or people trying to seek a tenure track position because it's the exact same problem. Um, I went with the tenure track position. So I'll tell that example, but this applies just as much to actors. So let me just say there's a really important concept for decision-making and Katie, I know you agree with this. It's something called base rates. So base rates basically are simply defined as like, how often does something happen in the situation that's like the one that I'm considering or in the case of acting, how long does it take? right? In general, for someone who's like me to achieve success. So this is, it's just a really important concept because it grounds your decision-making in um, reality and it gives you something to benchmark to. So the example I use in the the book is, let's say that you got a PhD in the humanities. Now, one thing that's important to note about the humanities is if if you quit, it's very hard to go back to academics. So we'd be talking about a one-way door situation here. And the question is, how long should you keep going if your goal is to get a tenure track position? And this is a particularly hard problem because there's lots of things that can happen that will make you feel like you're making progress. So uh, there's lots of postdocs that you can secure. There's lots of adjunct positions that you can secure that are not tenure track positions, but they make you feel like you're moving along and maybe getting close. And for every one of those, you know, you'll have the thought of, well, now I'm in with the university. So like if a tenure track position comes open, obviously I'm going to be able to secure that one. The way to approach that so that you don't get caught in that I'm almost there problem and then you're sort of an endless adjunct and postdoc is to look up the base rate and say, for somebody who's a newly minted PhD, how long does it take them on average to secure a tenure track position in my field? So you could look that up and let's say that the average time from getting your PhD to getting a tenure track position is four years. Now you can sort of fudge around that and say, but I'd be willing to try for six or I'm only willing to try for three. But again, you're setting a deadline in advance and then literally circle that date on the calendar. And if you have not gotten the tenure track position by then, you should stop. And acting is a similar problem because you can get like the one line you know, you can get the extra, you can get, there's all these things that aren't really your goal. So you want to define what your goal is. Let's say it's to get a regular role on a television show. I don't know for this person, but let's say that that's what it is. You figure out how long from like when the person starts pounding the pavement to getting securing one of those roles. You could also ask things like how many auditions does it usually take? Right. So there's the other base rates that you can find, but you can set those marks and then you can say, you know, if the average is 80 auditions and I've gone 100. Right. Then I have to stop if the average is it takes six years to get a real real role with some that's beefy. Then if I haven't done that within six years, I should stop. You could have interim milestones. Like if I can't even get a one line role within the space of two years, then I should stop. So um, this is how you sort of approach these kinds of problems is you sort of look at what happens on average and then you figure it out. So like if I want to be an Olympic sprinter, I should look at, well, when Olympic sprinters are 15, sort of what's the range of how fast they're running. And if I'm well, if I'm below that range, I should Maybe I still love running, so I'll keep running, but I should assume that I'm not pursuing the goal of being an Olympic sprinter at that point because it just tells me that that's not going to be achievable and I should turn my attention to something else. 
And you should do that because there's opportunity costs involved. So every minute that you're spending pursuing acting or that tenure track position is time that you can't spend going finding something that is going to actually help you to achieve your goals and help you feel fulfilled and happy. And that's not to say that you have to be a tenure track professor. That might not be your goal. You might love being a postdoc uh, and then your kill criteria would be different. But if your goal is, I want to be, you know, an actor who's actually getting a lot of roles, then this is the way that you would approach this. I want to add a quick insertion because I'm noticing from the Q&A, some folks are asking, what is a tenure track job? Just for those of you who aren't inside of uh, inside baseball with me and Annie, we're talking about the world of academia and professorships and a tenure track job is the uh, desirable sort of, I, I have a position that could be for life at a university and other jobs in academia are much less cushy and well-paid. And so that's the dream. It's sort of like, and they don't have job security in the same way. Yeah. So once you, once you receive tenure, at least in America, you have your job for life. So it's a hard, there's a lot of, especially in the humanities, there's a lot of people who try for this and they try for years and it never works out sort of like, and it never happens. And then they're 55 years old, still picking up a class here and there, still hoping to be a tenure track professor, but you can see that in acting as well, right? Like there's people who've been pounding the pavement for 30 (laughs) years, getting lots of like extra jobs or a line here or there or whatever. And you know, it's the writing is kind of on the wall at that point, you know, and then if we think about confirmation bias, you can always point to, but this person didn't make it until they were 58. And it's like, okay, <laughs> like, all right, you found the one person. Um, excellent. But is this really what your goal is? So, yeah. And then the answer to the second question is yes, it applies to relationships too. That, that's about as much as I need to say about it because it applies to everything. I couldn't agree more. It applies to everything. Love that. Okay. So Annie, after all the conversations you've had with readers since writing this book, I'm curious if there's anything you wish you could go back and include or clarify in what you've written. For sure. The relationship part. Okay. So <laughs> funnily enough, it's exactly that. So I would say that the biggest pushback that I've gotten And this was even in the Wall Street Journal review was like of the book was like really positive, except they said, but it wouldn't apply to relationships. So what people say to me is, well, sure, for jobs and, you know, projects and product development and maybe like your career, uh, whatever, that obviously that applies, but it doesn't apply to relationships because those are different. So this is something I hear all the time as if as if decisions don't go into that as if it's a magic process of some point point. And I think that what people mean by that is they sort of sense that relationships are a matter of the heart. Um, and maybe other things are a matter of your brain, but I think what we need to remember is your heart doesn't think. And when we're saying like, it's a matter of the heart, I think what we're really saying is like, it's some combination of the subconscious mind and the amygdala, maybe, I guess something. So they'll say like, when, So I talk a lot about like thinking and expected value that what we're trying to do, like simply put is expected value, positive expected value means that you're gaining ground toward your goals. Um, So whatever I'm investing, I'm getting a positive return on because I'm gaining ground and negative expected value means you're losing ground. So what I say is like the way that you figure out if you should quit something is if it's no longer positive expected value sometimes on its own or sometimes in comparison to other things you could be doing. So you could think about if I'm on a road that's moving slowly and another road is faster, I'm better off switching off the road than I'm on and getting onto the road that's faster because it has a higher expected value. I'm going to gain more ground 
toward my goal. And that's true of like the paths that we take in life, like the roads we're on in life. So then people will say, well, that doesn't apply to relationships because those are matters of the heart and it's only a one-time choice. So you're not thinking like in expected value in that same way. And my response to that is, so are you marrying a random person that you meet at the mall? Because if you're not, and you're actually choosing the person that you're marrying, then it's the same decision. Because what that means is that you're saying, this person in comparison to other people that I might marry is going to help me to achieve what I want out of a relationship, which I assume is happiness, fulfillment, a sense of love and mutual care and respect and, you know, whatever it is that you want out of a relationship. And of course, you're thinking an expected value then because you're saying this person is going to help me gain ground toward my goals more so than other people as it relates to a relationship. So that's still an expected value decision, which is why we don't marry a random person, because the same things that we think about in terms of structuring decisions when they come to jobs also apply to relationships. And I wish that I had just been like much clearer about that, that it doesn't make it not romantic. Because I think it's very romantic for me to say, I think that you're the person who's most likely to help me fulfill my romantic dreams about what my relationship is supposed to be like. I think that's I think you romantic. have high expected value. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, I think that's super, We could super... write some really nerdy Valentine's cards together this year. That is so true. <laughs> right, exactly. So that is the thing that I actually wish I had clarified the most was that this really does apply to relationships. And to the question, of course, kill criteria applies to relationships. We've all had friends who like, they come to us and they complain that their relationship isn't going well. And then it's three months later and you're like, what's going on? And they're like, oh, I'm not ready to decide yet. You know, and then it's like, you know, five years later and they're still in the relationship because they already put so much time into it, but they've been miserable for five years. And, you know, I'm sort of setting aside the complication of children. I'm assuming there's no children here, but that person could have spent that time finding someone who was going to really fulfill them. And so when you find yourself deeply unhappy in a relationship, you should set kill criteria, meaning don't kill your partner, but meaning what are the things that I could see in say six months that would tell me that this is not fulfilling, that I'm still really unhappy. And then go get a quitting coach, go find a couples therapist who's going to help you work through like, what are the signs of happiness? How might we achieve happiness? What are the things that are going to tell me that I'm I'm below that, that I'm not finding the happiness and fulfillment and joy that I was expecting or hoping to in the beginning so that you can move on to something that is going to, you're going to find fulfillment with and doing anything else. It's like your life is too short for that. Like go find happiness. I love that uh, one-liner, go find happiness. Okay, one last question for you from my list. And then I promise I'm going to turn okay. to some more Q&A. I did take a couple, but I'm going to turn and focus on the Q&A in chat. My last question is, if you could give us a concrete example of something you've quit recently that's improved your life. Oh, yeah. Okay, so uh, uh, in the last spring, so I have lots of clients. And I feel a deep obligation to my clients. So I do, uh, you know, strategic decision-making with my clients. I help to set up decision processes. They rely on me. Um, I finished my book, uh, meaning the draft of the book. That didn't mean that I didn't have to do a whole bunch of other stuff in between, as you know, lots of editing and whatnot. But when I did that, I realized that I had been sort of nonstop for a really long time. And it was, this was very hard for me to do, but I start, I 
and I did it. I started sampling to see how my clients were going to react to it, but I told them I was going to take three months off. And so I just quit. I quit working with them for three months. And first of all, I think that an important thing is that we tell ourselves stories about how we're going to let people down or they're going to be disappointed in us. And all of my clients were like, oh, that's amazing. You've been working too hard anyway. Like, yes, please go take three months off. They were all very joyful for me, actually. So that story in my head was wrong. And when I took the three months off, it was amazing. I mean, it really improved my life. I basically spent about an hour and a half in the morning and an hour and a half in the evening with the extra free time hiking with my dog down to this river. And it was like kind of summer and he was hot and he would go immediately jump into the river and I wouldn't bring my phone or anything with me. And it would just be like time with my dog. And it was amazing. And earlier, by the way, I have to say there was a little, he did. Yeah. He's over on the chair over here. So, (laughs) um, uh, but yeah, it was, it was really, it was really incredible and it was so good that I quit. Now, this is something that's important about quitting is that it doesn't need to be permanent. I knew I was going to go back to my clients, but I quit for three months and it was, and I, I, I really didn't do anything. I played tennis and hiked with my dog for three months and like caught up on some television. And yeah, that was like the best thing I've done in a long time. That sounds magnificent. And I also love the point that quitting doesn't have to be permanent, a sabbatical, a time away from something that's not working for you a break is, is a a form of quitting. Okay. I'm going to turn to some wonderful questions from our audience and this is a tough one, but I know you, you have a great answer. So this one, well, we'll uh, see. I don't know. Maybe not. Now I feel pressure. (laughs) Okay. So this, this attendee says to me, it sounds like one will never achieve greatness with the approach of constantly quitting, looking at base rates, et cetera. What about the four minute mile run story? Nobody thought it was possible until one person did it. And then others were able to do it. So I think the question is, if you're not dreaming ambitious dreams and pushing yourself beyond what you might think a rational person's kill criteria is, how will great things happen? Maybe that's another rephrasing. So I think there's a difference between saying, I want to push myself to run as fast as possible. That's fine. And I want to be like an Olympic runner because uh, the person who ran a four minute mile was an Olympic runner who was training to be as fast as possible So, um, you know, I don't know if they particularly had a dream of a four minute mile, but the thing is that they're fulfilling other things. The dream of a four minute mile is what we would call kind of like an infinite goal. Like I'm just trying to achieve like the fastest that I can run. And even if I do hit a four minute mile, I'm still going to try to run even faster than that versus something like I want to be in the Olympics, which is, which is really different. So I want to be really clear about something. I'm not saying that you should quit everything. I'm saying quit the stuff that isn't worthwhile and stick to the stuff that is, right? And then think about your goals as broader goals. Like I want it, like go find happiness, right? So like that's a, a broad goal. Um, I want to uh, be, I want to be a marathon runner, right? Assuming you don't want to be elite, then that's something that you might try out. Maybe, maybe you don't, you know, your body can't take it. So you could have kill criteria there. Like when your orthopedist says, please stop running because you're going to break things. Um, but but if you say like, I want to be a marathon runner and my goal is to try to be fit and improve my times as much as I possibly can. Um, and then you can set some kill criteria around that, which just have to do with like your body breaking um, or you discover that you hate the time away from your family or whatever, Notice that then you're going to start to speed up and eventually you're going to be able to run a marathon. Actually, 
I think now they can do it with doing all like four minute miles or something like that. What I don't want you to do is run a single marathon with a broken leg because you're trying for the finish line. And people do that all the time. A woman named Siobhan O'Keefe did it. So it's like, think about what are you sticking to and what aren't you sticking to? Think about the way that you're defining goals and the way that you're not. Because when you have concrete, very clearly set finish lines, those are good for motivating you, but they're bad for motivating you because you need to add some unlesses to them um, that will allow you to escape. When your goals are kind of broader than that and you're trying to think about what are all the different ways that I could achieve my goal, like fulfillment or Maybe you do want to try to achieve things that nobody else has achieved and that's fine with you. Then I say, go for it. As long as you understand the conditions under which you should stop going for it. So if you want to run a four minute mile, uh, that's great. Unless you're 50 and then you start running a six minute mile and then a seven minute mile and then an eight minute mile. And then I hope that you would change your goal to, I just like running if that's what you want to continue to do. So I I hope that made sense, what I just said, but that's the way that I view it. I don't know if I made any sense. I found it very useful and uh, sort of summarize, basically, you're not saying quit everything. You're saying only quit the things that that aren't working and aren't realistic. And the kill criteria should help you determine, is this feasible and is it going in the right direction? But that doesn't mean you can't do ambitious things. No, of course. And, And in fact, what I will tell you is that kill criteria allow you to do more ambitious things. Because when you're doing things that are ambitious, audacious, innovative, that is when you have the least information at the point that you start. And so you want to be really quick when you get the information that it isn't going to work out to switch to another ambitious and audacious and innovative thing so that you can go switch and start that instead. Because if your goal overall is like, I want to change the world, right? Like I want to do something that's amazing. Then when you try something innovative and it doesn't work, you got to switch fast. And figure out what those things are that are going to signal whether you should do it. But I want to just be very clear. Like, I'm a super gritty person, but I'm also a very quitty person. And I think that's the thing is that they have to live together, right? Stick to the things that are worthwhile. Quit all the rest. You know, I mean, I finished the book. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I I didn't quit in the middle of the book. Love that. Okay. Uh, We have one question from James, which is interesting. James is really interested in some of the things you've said that are related to stock market traders and how they can think about being more profitable by quitting at the right time, as opposed to escalating commitment, and is wondering if you could offer any other suggested reading that you think would help uh, him and others think about that issue in terms of the stock market. Um, Yeah, so Alex Emas has a couple of great papers on this. The most famous of which would be, it's called Dynamic Inconsistencies. You can go over to Google Scholar and you can uh, read about them there. So basically, there's two problems with stock market traders. Uh, The first would be a general problem, which is more in the retail space, which is that they hold on to losing stocks too long and they sell winning stocks too quickly. So again, remember I said, I don't think you should quit everything. And sometimes people do indeed quit too soon. And it's specifically when um, uh, the stock is winning. So quit while you're ahead is also very bad advice, Uh, just funnily enough. But anyway, so you see this pattern with them. Now we can see how kill criteria would help with that, right? Because if you're entering into a trade, I assume you're forecasting something about the fundamentals that you're going to see. And you can sort of set like what's the lower bound and upper bound for where I'm going to see this fundamental or if I over if there's a particular correlation that I wasn't expecting. 
an example of that would be if I buy Bitcoin because I think it's going to be a hedge against inflation, and then I find out information that is actually correlated with inflation, then I ought to sell. And I could set that in advance as a kill criteria, because otherwise what will happen is I'll buy Bitcoin for that reason. And if I haven't set the kill criteria, then when it turns out to be correlated inflation, I'll switch to a different reason to hold it. I'll either say, well, now it's really cheap, or I'll say I'm actually a minute for the technology or something like that. So that's helpful with that problem that Alex Emas points out. And then another problem just has to do with kind of a feedback issue, which is that we don't really track the things that we sell. So we track the stuff that we buy. We have benchmarks, which is just the performance of the market in general. Um, so if we just index the market, how would we do? And we track that. We're looking at that PL, the way it's ticking up and down every single day. But then when we sell a position, it's out of sight, out of mind. This is generally a problem with like getting better at quitting. And what you find is that even elite traders they're doing about 1.2 percentage points better than sort of an index of the market, which is amazing on the buy side. But on the sell side, they're actually doing about 0.7 percentage points worse than the market. And what does that mean? What if they sold randomly out of their portfolio as opposed to selling the thing that they did? So he talks about that as well. And I think that that's just really important work if you want to get sort of deep into the science of what happens with traders. And the solution to that is to create a benchmark. What, you know, what if I sold randomly out of my portfolio and I can track the my actual quit decisions to what would have happened in terms of the sort of counterfactuals of how my portfolio might have constructed in the same way that we do that on the buy side. And that will actually be really helpful. So that's a great thing to read. I would also suggest like Noise by Danny Kahneman, I think has some very good suggestions about how to get better at these kinds of trading decisions from a sort of cognitive standpoint. And then Michael Mobison, The Success Equation, which really talks about the contributions of skill and luck to these types of decisions, which I also think would be super helpful. Oh, and Super Forecasting by Phil Tetlock, because it just helps you to become a better forecaster in terms of investing. Those are wonderful book recommendations. And hopefully everyone's writing those down. So I think we have time for one last quick question. Okay. And I want to end with a question that um, Sim sent in, uh, in advance, actually. And I think it's a, it's a great question. I had a similar one on my list that I didn't get to. And the question is, how do we deal with the wider societal expectation that giving up is bad? So everything you said is undoubtedly true. The science backs you up. But we get quotes from people like Winston Churchill saying, never get in, give in, never give in, never, never, never. This is a quote from Sim's comment. Uh, so so how are we going to confront that when we make a good decision, we have the kill criteria, we quit, and others are looking at us and thinking, gosh, that means you're not gritty. Um, so, your yeah. Point. Winston Churchill, by the way, the last part of that quote, I think, is except in matters of honor and common sense. Um, and we forget about the accept part, but isn't that an unless to a goal? Like, isn't that sort of a light version of kill criteria, right? Like, don't give up, except sometimes you should, which is essentially what he said, but we only remember the don't give up part. Listen, that's the $64,000 question, right? Like, that's the reason why I wrote the book. I, I'm not sure, except to normalize and rehabilitate the concept of quitting. So you can do it in small ways. Like, look, with the sales team that I worked with in small ways, we normalize quitting, right? We made it part of deal review and the leadership is now managing their employees to early quits, but also long sticks, right? Like early quit the stuff that doesn't work, stick to the stuff that does. And that's now enculturated within that particular team. I think that this takes intention, um, but from a societal standpoint, 
you know, it's a, it's part of why I wrote the book because I, I, I'm not sure. I think people just have to start like saying it out loud and proud, but you're fighting against some very deep cognitive biases. So the way that I would sort of what I would say about this is I don't know that we can fix it from a societal standpoint. So you better focus on fixing it for you because it's gonna be really important for you to be able to fix it for you because, you know, society does not view quitters kindly. All right. Well, those are some powerful closing words. You can fix yourself. You can't necessarily fix the world, though. It's worth trying. Um, It is worth trying. I mean, you know, I wrote a book book to try. (laughs) Yes, I'm so glad you wrote the book. Um, I just want to say thank you so much to the How To Academy for hosting this event. And Annie, thank you for taking the time to share all these amazing insights, both today uh, and through the book. So it's been a pleasure hosting and I look forward to our next conversation. Thank you so much, Katie, for being willing to do this. I know that uh, you were traveling. And so this was really, uh, you were bending over backwards to be able to have this conversation with me and with everybody in the group. So I'm so deeply appreciative. And I just also want to thank the audience. You know, I mean, you know, Katie, you know, like as an author, it's like you're, you write something and then they're hoping people will be interested and they'll read it. And, and when you get to have these cool conversations with audiences who are willing to listen to the strange stuff that lives in your head. I think that it's such a gift and something to be so grateful for. So I just want to add that in as well, that I'm very grateful for you and very grateful for the audience as well. Likewise. It's a perfect place to end. Bye everyone. Have a wonderful rest of the week. And thanks, Annie. This episode starred Annie Duke and was presented by Katie Milkman. The producer was Luke Naylor Perrett and the series is made by me, Vas Christodoulou and Esme Bright with help from Nicole Wong. Our editor is John Doughty. If you're in the UK, we have some amazing live events coming up to kick off 2023, including comedian Frankie Boyle in conversation with Bernie Sanders and Mervyn King in conversation with the FT's legendary economist Martin Wolf. For those and a whole lot more, visit us at howtoacademy.com. We're on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter too. Until next time, thanks for listening.